1: Hello, everyone out there in the New Books Network audience. Uh, my name is Erica Monahan and I am a host here today on the New Books Network. Today I have the great pleasure of introducing introducing and interviewing Paul Bushkovich. Paul Bushkovich is the Ruben Post Professor of History at Yale University. He is also the author of a number of seminal monographs in the field. I will name just, uh, I will name a few of them. Um, The Merchants of Moscow is a study of merchants and trade in Muscovy. He is the author of Religion and Society in Russia in the 16th and 17th centuries um, with Maya Jansen and Nikolai Rogozhin. Um, He has also written other works. He is the author of a seminal study about Tsar Peter the First, Peter the Great, the struggle for power. And in case that heavy tome is is too much for any, like it is for some of my undergraduates reading lots of things on a a tight schedule. He also has a shorter monograph, um, very readable, fantastic, called Peter the Great, which is a super um, undergraduate student read. Uh, He is also the author of a, terrific textbook, a concise history of Russia, which I also use in my classes. Um, And today we, um, and I should also say he is, he has authored countless articles that I won't even name here, edited volumes. And he has also been a mentor and advisor to many of the historians that are now working and producing work on Russian history in our field, so it is really an honor to get to talk to Paul Bushkovich today about his most recent book, which is is out by Cambridge University Press, and it is called Succession to the Throne in Early Modern Russia. Now I'm gonna, um, so thank you for being with us, Paul. And I'll begin with the first traditional question that is often asked of authors here on the New Books Network. And that is, can you please tell our audience a little bit about your path into history? How and why did you become a Russian historian?
0: Well, that's fairly easy to answer. Um, I guess I've wanted to be a Russian historian for almost as long as I can remember. And I think the reason is very simple. I, in a way, uh, grew up with it. Um, My father went through the First World War Revolution and Civil War in Russia and left for the United States at the age of 17 in 1923. So I spent much of my uh, adolescence listening to him telling all of these stories about what happened. Um, You know, he had many colorful stories. The time that they were on a train between Kiev and Odessa and the Makhno units um, got up to the train and started machine gunning it. So the conductor went through the train, told everybody to hit the floor, and they actually, that was, I think at that point, the area was controlled by the whites. Um, and they had machine guns on the roof of the cars and were returning fire. Anyway, they got through that. Nobody, the train didn't stop, and they, um, uh, they basically drove away, and the Makhnovs gave up. So I heard all these stories, and it was, um, Well, I mean, I was growing up also in suburban St. Louis, Missouri, and it was a little more dramatic than the surrounding um, uh, territory, so to speak. So I thought this was an interesting thing to do. And when I went to uh, college, that was basically where I was going. And I I ended up at Columbia in 1970 as a graduate school, which at that time um, was quite a place to be. a Russian history.
1: Wow, that is such a remarkable origin story, um, and uh, um, and one shared by Rostov Labanovsky, who um, who appears in in this book as a, as a character um, around the very start of the seventeenth century. Uh, thank you for that. With that, let, let's get into it, and I'll start with a um, uh, my next question: Why did you write this book?
0: Um... Well, there, it was a complicated story, and it uh, I think it took too long. I hope that doesn't show in the text, but maybe it does. Anyway, what happened was that I, as you know, wrote this rather long book about Peter the Great, and what I was really interested in is one part of the mechanics of the way the state worked, monarchy. In other words, the relationship between Peter and the various what were understood everywhere in Europe at that time to be factions at court, you know, who were the factions consisting mostly of great aristocrats um, and a few other people, and how he managed to keep things going in those years and uh, accomplish his goals. And then I decided I would write a book about um, the image of the monarch from about the 15th century through at least Peter's time. And I started doing that. And there were two things happened. One is I got distracted by that concise history that you mentioned. I was under the illusion that I could do this in a year or two. Well, that didn't happen. I mean, that was just a completely ridiculous idea. Um, I mean, I could write the first chapters fairly quickly, but, um, first of all, it took me a while to figure out how to do it. And then I realized I needed to keep reading if I was going to make sense and be up to date for the later chapter. So I didn't know quite what to do. And also I was getting more and more concerned that I thought the trouble with the image of the monarch is it didn't change very much from, I mean, the ideal orthodox ruler and the Russian conceptions of it didn't change very much from about the 1450s to about 1670. I mean, there were some changes and there were some odd texts in there and there were some things to describe, but not much changed. And also, many of my colleagues in the US and Western Europe and in Russia were writing a lot about that. And I didn't think that I was going to be contributing a whole lot. So I also, as I was doing this, I kept feeling that there's something that's more, I need something more concrete. And I sort of fell into this question of succession. And I realized that that was another part, it was another part of the issue of the mechanics, as I call it. How did the state actually work? Um, I mean, one of the things that you realize, I mean, we all know this. If you read, for instance, the Chronicles of the 16th century, they present for all, however much concrete information they give you, they present a very formal picture of what's happening. I mean, the great example is, as Charles Halperin pointed out, that in all of the entries for the years 1533 to 1547, it says that the Grand Prince of all Moscow, of Moscow and all Rus, Ivan Vasilievich, gave orders to do this, that, and the other thing, and he was, of course, six years old. So, you know, this is a kind of protocol picture. And I wanted to know, well, okay, fine. I, that's interesting to know that that's how they wanted to present the, the monarch, but I got, couldn't get away from the mechanics. And I kind of fell into this succession thing because I realized that the simple idea of primogeniture didn't really fit. I think, and so I decided to sort of rethink it and go back through the events and the sources and see, well, okay, what really was happening? You know, was that famous incident in the 1490s when Yvonne III decides to give the throne to his second son, not the son of his first son, which primogeniture systems would require. um, how, How strange was that? And so that was really where I guess I got into it.
1: Thank you. Yeah, the, um, and I'll just say I found this such a fascinating read and it and this kind, um, for me, this read was a real combination of almost um, feeling like you're there play by play a bit as events are unfolding and you're sort of bringing, mm-hmm. bringing to the reader's attention dynamics while also keep having a very source-conscious read. I mean, it is remarkable the amount of... the 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 paper trails that you followed and um and when you occasionally drop um this remark about you know there's no piece of paper or something it it it's um it seems to be built on just decades of erudition so i it really is a remarkable read in that respect now um and and i want to talk about these issues of um well one among them primogenitor but to sort of frame um a kind of little cluster of questions so as I read it in this history, you're arguing that there's there's no if you're, as many already know there's no explicit law for determining the heir to the Russian throne, and in this mm-hmm. really imperfect. But if we were going to force a schema on things, you show us three main routes to the throne: one, the a designation by the grand prince or then later czar; two, elections; and then three, having the um, having um, the heir explicitly designate the heir that Peter, Tsar Peter I brings about with his succession law in 1722. Um, And so one question that I have in all this is why do you think that a matter as important as succession is only explicitly, precisely articulated in 1722 and then a different law about it is made in 1797? is it that customs was strong enough? Um, was the matter never was always so immediate that it never seemed worthy enough to be kind of theoretically dealt with, um, with the foibles of individual health, et cetera? Um, or were politics so precarious and contentious that that sort of a, um, you know, um, they couldn't be settled definitively? Like, why was it, Influx through all these centuries when it's such a crucial matter.
0: Okay, well, <clears throat> I think there are several. Yes, that's a very good question. That's sort of the core of the whole thing, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> I think there are two ways to look at this. First of all, um, there's the what you might call there's a legal question, um, and that is that they, if you a lot, there's a great deal in Russian law, particularly before the 1649 code or Ulazhenia, it's not really a code, but close, um, uh, that is left to custom, which is quite crucial. I mean, one of the things that's that's a good example of this is that there's no law describing what is a serf. Um, There is no, you know, that if you look at these Sudyebniki that we are are the subject of legal historians work for so many, for now two centuries, virtually, um, you find there, what is, a lot of it is procedural, okay? But then you don't find in most of these things a description of what is inheritance, or in criminal law, okay, what's a murder? You know, they don't go into that kind of thing. What you get is a series of complicated cases. And then they say, in this case, do that. And we can deduce what they thought on more general levels, but they don't actually uh, explain things. This is a customary, it's a system of customary law. So I don't think it's terribly surprising that they don't bother to write this down until Peter's time. Um, I mean, in much of, parenthetically, much of Peter's legislation, he's doing two things at once. One is that he, and not just about the succession, in all areas, in many cases, he's doing two things at once. One is that he is putting out something that's new, but some of those laws have elements in them that are not absolutely new, but have never been written down. I mean, he has—he makes a big—he made a big thing out of this. And there's, you know, there's that decree of 1714, which is really an internal memorandum to the officials um, that they have to, in the future, write down the motivations for the decisions that they make. I mean, if you think about it, nothing was ever written down in the Boyarduma, and that, you know, the Senate is supposed to write things down. I mean, not literally. you know, a minute by minute account of every words, but by and large, they do write down what the decisions are and what are what are the motivations, so does the Senate. Um, so I think there's a problem of customary law that Russia runs with a kind of customary law probably longer than was a good idea. And, you know, that's why in 1649, they produced this which as was already pointed out by the 19th century scholars, huge parts of it is just a translation of the Litovsky Statute. Um, and by the way, they don't have anything in there. Um, I think maybe because it wasn't in the Lithuanian statute or but there's very little in that 1649 law code about the Tsar and what he is. I mean, there's that famous first passage about how you can't bring a sword into the palace and the dignity and honor of the Tsar. That's one of the translated sections, by the way, that comes from the Lithuanian code. Um, But there's nothing about succession or or any of the kind of what we would think of as constitutional issues. That's the basic problem. I think the other two, there are other two issues. One is a matter of perception. Um, which is that we, uh, Russian historians, and I mean historians of Russia, not people who are in Russia and Russians, but all of us in U.S., Europe, and um, America, often have something of a textbook view of Western Europe. And there's always in Russian historiography an implicit comparison. Even if nobody mentions it, it's there anyway. And the uh, idea of primogeniture in Western Europe is, um, well, the difference is that they produce some kind of written document in most countries, but the actuality is much more complicated. Um, and I think that's one of the issues. And the um, uh, so the contrast is not as great as it looks. Uh, finally, the last bit I think is this, is that, you're right about asking about the politics. I think that the politics were often rather contentious and that that had the effect of um, discouraging people from trying to formulate this too clearly. Uh, But also I think there's another factor This is gonna be my last point in answer to this question. There's another factor that we keep forgetting. And that is, I say this in the book, but I sometimes think I ought to have put a whole paragraph and sort of put arrows pointing to it, um, that there's a huge element of contingency here. And that has to do, frankly, with the biology of uh, the pre-modern family. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are too many contingent factors um, that, you know, the chances that, I mean, we know all these cases and there are dozens of them in Western Europe, too. I mean, there's a whole story with, you know, Vasily Third and Solomonia Saburova. I mean, the woman doesn't have any kids for years. Obviously, uh, there's some fertility problem here. He, Vasily gets married to Elena Glinsky, and boom, then they appear. But if also, if you think about it, if a woman has in 16th or 17th century Europe, if a woman has five kids, the chances that, you know, more than three of them will live to adulthood are very small. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and you also don't. They're the health problems. I mean, these all these people. OK, they in some cases they live. But, um, you know, look at the Romanovi in the 17th century. All right. I mean, first of all, um, Mikhail and Clara Michael and his wife produce about eight kids, of which um, only one male, Alexei, lives to adulthood, and then five extremely healthy girls. Next generation, same story. The only male child of Alexei who's healthy is Peter. The first heir dies at the age of 19. The other two are not very healthy. And then there are four or five extremely healthy women. Um, You know, that, um, and this kind of thing, you know, is is totally out of anybody's control. So, you know, what are you going to do in a situation? Suppose that the, that your chances of having, uh, ending up with no heir are one that's in Competent, I mean, are very high, and then there's, of course, the issue. Suppose the only one available is female, and you know, most people will eventually. I mean, I the Russians never quite were faced with that um, until 1725 or even 1730, really. Uh, but they came very close, yeah. and I don't know what decision they would have made if that had happened.
1: Yeah, in some ways, that is a great segue as and um, you know, as I think about the um, Romanovi dynasty in the 17th century, and then, you know, early 18th century coming to, you know, coming to the brink of having no heir. And, and then I think about how we tell the story of the rise of Muscovy and say how lucky, how genetically lucky the Danilovici line seems to have been. They consistently have heirs and heirs, and this contributes to Muscovy emerging as a regional and then greater power. Um, and then you kind of, once we get this dynasty established, they, ha- they have, um, you know, they're on the brink, uh, almost on a regular, well, on a regular basis, perhaps. But so this makes me think about um, I wanted to ask you about where where dynasty, um, how we should think about dynasty going forward. And maybe I would almost preface it. As, as I read this, it's almost like there's this toolbox, a toolbox of ways in which um, the the succession can occur Um, and dynasty gets referred to and choosing gets referred to, designation gets referred to, primogenitor gets um, referred to, and maybe there's advantages of keeping it all in play. Um, I mean, is that a fair way to see it? And how uh, do you want us to, think about dynasty in a different way. For example, because I always say to my students, I say in all of Russian history, except for this episode with the Time of Troubles, we've got two dynasties, the Rurikovichi and then the and then the Romanovi. And dynasty is super important in ordering political systems in Eurasia. Um, uh, So I mean, is this, should I change the strength I impart to the notion of dynasty?
0: Um, no, I think because the thing is, yes, the dynasties are very important, but I mean, uh, I think that the, the issue is that um, it's, 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 you say, it's only part of the story, and also they begin to sort of shift in their conceptions and practices about what is the dynasty. I mean, in the medieval period, you know, the, this German scholar Nietzsche who wrote the only book on this question really before mine, and he was trying to prove primogeniture. But what he meant by that is that he wanted to show that they, by the 15th and sixth, early 16th century, that, that Rurikovici, Ry- 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 at least in Moscow, had primogeniture as opposed to having the, the possibility of the oldest brother, not the oldest son of the ruler you know, that's what he was trying to show, that they were eliminating the possibility of the next brother rather than the next son. Um, And in that sense, he was right. So that there's a shift to of conception of the dynasty. But within that, I think what they meant, I mean, yes, they want to have the dynasty. And you can see in sort of ideological conceptions and things like the stip in Nyakniga, that's how they present it. But the in other respects, the question is okay, fine dynasty Rurikovich, but um, they don't do so. They do some things and they don't do others. And in many of the West European systems, if the king dies, you sit down and has no sons, you sit down with the genealogy and come up with some remote cousin, you know, who could possibly be the king. Um, I mean, I should have said this somewhere, but I mean. Read through Shakespeare's history plays. Look at all that stuff in the Wars of the Roses. If you can keep in your head, you have to have a chart to follow the text because you can't keep in your head whose cousin is what and all the rest of it. Um, But in the Russians never seem to go for remote cousins of the Rurikovichi. It has to be the main line. Second, the other thing is that the Russians in the course of the 16th century you know, I was very struck by those oaths that the various boyars had to give when they were got into trouble for one reason or another and swear oaths of loyalty. Then, in the course of the first half of the 16th century, it moves from being you swear of loyalty just to the Veliki Knaz, and then it gets to be him and his wife, and then it gets to be him and the wife and the children whom God will give. Mm-hmm. And that's the final formula that remains into the 17th century. I mean, when the kids are, are, when there are enough kids, then they start naming the children. You know, by the time of Tsar Michael, it will say, you know, and to, and they first list all the the male children, but then they list all the girl children. So that you're swearing an oath in 1640, if you have to, and for instance, for the army, you're swearing an oath to Tsar Alexei, his Tsaritsa, I think it's Yevdakia is her name, um, and Alexei, his heir, and all of those girls. Yeah. Um, so you know, you're you're selling, you're swearing loyalty to a family, not just <clears throat> an individual. Um, so that's, I think, part of it. The other thing, one last point on this question, is that I didn't make huge issue out of this, but I think people ought to pay more attention to these elections. I mean, the election of Boris, I mean, in fact, there are elections during the Smutnay of Remia, even if they're sort of farcical, but or, or imperfect, shall we say, but they exist. They, somebody seems to think this is a good thing to at least pretend to do. And then there's the election of Sarmichael. Um, uh, you know what are we supposed to do with this? I mean, we're t- we were taught for g- generations that this is all about Samudarzhavia. Great. What kind of Samudarzhavia is it when you elect the guy?
1: Yeah. Th- thank you so much. And that is actually I, I want to ask you more about that. Um, I have I've always found the the election of Mikhail Romanov so fascinating and, and puzzling, and of Boris Kudunov as well. Um, and so a, a kind of I have a couple of questions around that. First, just generally in terms of election, when you say election, should I, if I think of everyone present casting a vote, is that an appropriate understanding or is that too narrow of a construction of the word? So I kind of want to ask you just how you want me to understand this Um, And then I also want to ask you, I mean, I'm so glad you brought up you, you really make the point in this book that they don't go look for distant relatives of the Virikovici. I've always wondered about that. But I've also wondered in this um, fascinating episode of uh, The Time of Troubles, um, and for those that don't, um, uh, in the audience that might not be familiar with it, I really encourage you to um, pick up the section of in Paul Bushkovich's A Concise History or any number of books that talks about this period of real state collapse. And one question I've had about... Um, about the time of troubles is why why not get Prince Pajararski to be oh. the the ruler? He's leading a heroic um, a, he's leading the heroic campaign to oust the polls. He's somewhat noble. Why not him? Why go for Mikhail <laughs> Romanov? And um, I mean, was it did, how much do the Cossacks have to do with it? So I'd like to hear you talk about that again, election generally. and then tell us more about these elections around the time of troubles.
0: Well OK, there, first of all, there are some interesting things here. Um, as I think I say somewhere in the book, uh, the way these elections are played is that, that the historian, whoever it is, all the great names, and myself included in earlier writings, if I'm a great name anyway but you, know, I mean Platonov and the rest of them um, that they get you up to the story, and then they immediately they say that you know, Tsar Fyodor died. Great, and then they then they immediately go into Boris's maneuvering for the throne, and then it turns out that we're going to have an election, and there are a whole series of things there that aren't discussed. I mean, it's not obvious why you had to have an election. I mean, nobody explains this among the historians. I think part of the reason for that may be that also the people of the time didn't explain this. Um, you know, in the the very, this um, Gramata that they put out for Boris off. you can read that and it goes on and on and on about this, but they never justify the idea of electing the um, Tsar. The, uh, the and if I, mean, I, if I
1: could interrupt for just a moment, you even um, in the book, you show that they have a diplomatic out-facing correspondence in which they say not elected, but
0: yes, God chosen. Yes, it God chooses him. I mean, I think you know if they wanted to, they could have come up. You know, they knew their Old Testament very well, and they could have come up with some Old Testament precedents for this, but they didn't, and they they didn't choose to do that. They don't explain it at all. All they do with Boris is to explain that um, uh, it's okay to have Maurice as Tsar because, like. Um, uh, King, is it David? Yes, I think it's like King David in the Old Testament. He wasn't the son of a tsar, um, but they don't say good that. But that's about which candidate we should have, not about why should we have an election. Um, now, as to what was actually happening, the historians then immediately go into the sort of maneuvers and about how this was, and the whole idea is to present it as if Boris is manipulating the whole thing and it's completely fake. And that the same thing in many ways happens with Tsar Michael, although there they can't blame it on him because he's only 13 years old. So they have to go into the sort of maneuvers of the boyars. But then they run up against with Michael the problem that it's clear that in all the sources, that the Cossacks played a big role in this. Um, so, uh, you know, of course it wasn't an orderly election where they all raised their hands and then somebody counted and this kind of thing. Um, but I suppose it was more like acclamation or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the But the fact is that they do go through this ceremony. They do get together in some place and they do it. It's not as orderly as the elections of the Polish kings, although that could be disorderly too on occasion, but at least with in Poland, there was a theoretical structure where you were, so, how you were supposed to do it. So that it was, if it got out of hand and people started fighting and yelling at one another, it was more clear that this was not a good thing. Uh, you know, it, it was, there wasn't such a rule, a series of rules in Russia, but they do it. Um, uh, you know, it's not. It's not. Um, I, I don't really offer an explanation as to why my why they chose this. I don't know. What I wanted to point out was that this happened, and that you can't just elide it and say, "Oh well," and but this was a hereditary monarchy with these minor exceptions. These are not minor exceptions. Yeah.
1: That. Um, yeah. Thank you. It is. It's so fascinating. And then, in some ways. This will. I'll jump ahead. When you talk at at the end of the book, when you talk about um, Peter's law of succession in 1722, you have this line in chapter seven, and I had written, I noted it down, where you say, Mm -hmm. "What Peter did do by inaction, however, was in a sense a continuation of Russian tradition." And then you go on a little bit to say that. with this 1722 law of succession decree he eliminates the possibility of election by any section of the elite and i just wanted to sort of pause on that i have this um i i tend to think of peter as um you know immediate and trying to advance his kind of immediate interest not thinking in in theoretical philosophical terms but um so do you think it's just accidental that this eliminates election as something that had been um, a, a process that the elite had resorted to in the past on more than one occasion?
0: No, I mean- No, I think that was probably, he. what I meant by inaction was maybe I didn't explain myself to Wells because he doesn't make an explicit decision about whether or not his successor is going to be his wife or one of the children or whatever. Um, and he does. I mean, it, there have been speculation like, did he really make a will and somebody hid it or something like that? I don't think so. My guess is that he understood the coronation of his wife as meaning that she was a co-ruler, and if he's dead, she's in charge. And you know, the tradition and the the, the possible successors, um, even the women were all too young. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, at that point, uh, you know, elizabeth is only about. I don't know, about 12 or 15 or something like that. And, you know, um, the future Piotr uh, Fteroy is a kid. So he's, I think that's what I meant by inaction. But what that does is it leaves sort of the family in charge and you decide who in the family is gonna do it. And of course, if there are little children then or little stepchildren or grandchildren, then the person in charge is mother. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the tradition. But the the part about eliminating elections, yes, I think that was self. I mean, he doesn't say that, but I can't believe he wasn't thinking that. I mean, he, in a sense, you know, his own in 1682 when he and there was this dispute about he and himself and Ivan uh, Alexeyevich. Um, In a way, that was a kind of election. I mean, it's described in the literature as very disorderly and that the Boyars weren't really happy with it. They preferred to have Peter, it appears, or most of them, rather than uh, Yvonne. But the uh, participation of the Chelsea, like the Cossacks in 1613, um, you know, that's what he didn't want. And he, wasn't really, he didn't want any of this kind of stuff. Of course, the great irony is that he says that he doesn't want an election, or he, he sets it up so that there will be designation and not election. That's what he's doing. He's setting up designation. But of course, the great irony is that they have then three palace coups. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, well, in fact, there's one in 1725, effectively, the guards have to get together with the Senate and say, okay, we want, do want Catherine in 1730 in 1740, and again in 1762, and then in effect, in a way in 1801. Um, so uh, so we have an out of these, he has the, in effect, the elite is choosing the Tsar. The
1: yeah a sort of unintended consequence on a grand scale well, yeah
0: it very, very certainly was
1: the um yeah thanks I want to switch gears and ask you um uh, about a bit about women women yes. often show up in positions of authority in this book and so I wanted to ask you to say more about that um are and the things I'm wondering is are um you know are we mistaken of course, Russia was a deeply patriarchal society um, and but was it just that dynasty mattered more? But you're also telling a story in which dynasty is somewhat contingent. So I, I kind of wanted to um, hear you, ask you to talk a little bit more about the women and also just point out that I, I was deeply surprised by this example that you give of the first Romanov czar, Mikhail, his parents, Marfa and Filorette, um, you talk about them as heading different factions regarding his marriage, which I, I found that so surprising. So maybe you could say a bit more about that example, too.
0: Okay, good. I think I could. But if I would preface that by saying that one thing that I don't think anyone has really seriously considered is that in the 18th century, when the guards decide who is going to be the ruler of the country, um, thank you. Uh, when the guards are deciding who is going to be the ruler of the country, in, in four times in a row, they put a woman on the throne. And, you know, they're not putting on women because they're dumb enough to think that these women aren't powerful figures. They all know these women. Maybe they didn't know Anna very well, but they certainly knew Catherine. They knew uh, Elizabeth, uh, and they certainly knew Catherine the Second. So, you know, all these male patriarchal guards officers decided to put on the throne in 1763 or two or whatever it was, um, a woman whom they knew perfectly well was going to give them orders um, and, um, you know, and who was going to be in charge. So let's get back to the 16th and 17th century. I think that their problem that we have is there are maybe two things that are happening here. One is it could be that it's a source problem because of the Etiquette of Russian sources. In other words, a version of the story with of the childhood of Ivan the Third, Ivan the Terrible, I mean, that he's at age six said to be ordering soldiers to go to the southern frontier when obviously he wasn't doing that. So maybe they just don't tell you about the women because it's not part of the protocol. That's one theory. The other one is that it's possible that the status of at least the women of the dynasty evolved in the course of the 16th century. And that they know that by the 17th century, they were more important. Mm. But I think that the source problem is a serious one. And I will, mm. excuse me, I will um, very try to very briefly illustrate this with the story of the Marfa and Fillaret question. The, I, this is, um, I discovered this, and I discovered this more or less by accident. All of the things that I think I've found that were really interesting in my career, I found by accident. Um, it's not because I had this brilliant idea and then here we the sort of discovered the source. No. Um, this is the short version. In 1913, one of the Russian scholars published a... Uh, translation of a document that he had found on a research trip to Sweden, which gave an account of the court of the Russian court in the 1620s. But the first page of it, the document was in German. But the first page, that was common in the Swedish government to have a lot of, they had a lot of Germans writing things down. Okay, so the first page of it, he couldn't make any sense of was absolutely, inc- it was gibberish. And then gradually on the second page, he could see that it sort of formed into coherent German words and sentences. So he, that's okay, but he, and he, he couldn't figure it out. His guess was, which was wrong, was that the, it would have been copied by a clerk who had been given a document in Swedish that was to be translated into German for some purpose, and that he couldn't read the Swedish handwriting. This was turned out to be wrong. Um, I I found the original um, because I was looking to see what was the German one that the scholar had found. And when I was writing up Peter the Great, I got the Yale library to buy the entire Muscovitica from the Swedish archives from the beginning to something like 1750. Um, So I went down there and I, Uh, looked there and right next to it was another document. And it was not in Swedish, it was in Dutch. And I remembered from my infant days as an economic historian, having to write that book about the Moscow merchants, um, I had to learn to read Dutch handwriting, because after all, they were the main traders with the with the Russians in in those decades. So I looked at it and I said, okay, now I get it. I mean, the Russian scholar of 1913 was partly right. The German guy who was translating this into German couldn't read the handwriting. He could read the Dutch language, but he couldn't read the handwriting. I don't know why he didn't go back and correct the first page because he must eventually learn. But Dutch handwriting is different enough from German in the 17th century. You can see what the problem is. And the paragraph that, that he couldn't read was the crucial one. That's the one where it says there are two factions at this court, one behind the tsaritsa or the mother, she's not the tsaritsa, the mother of well, actually, I'd have to look again. I don't know whether they, what title they gave her. Anyway, the mother of the Tsar, Michael, and the other is Filariette. Um, And that, that's, um, uh, that's what was there. So this was total accident. But that's what that set me thinking was, wait a minute. Maybe there's a lot of stuff out there that, if, that we don't really know about where that would tell us more about this kind of thing. But I don't, it would be a kind of wild goose chase to go hunting out for information about the tsaritsi as a targeted search. You'll never find it. But I think we should just be aware of it. And when we run across it, my guess is we'll run across some of it. Yeah. You know, Isolda Ture was worried about this. She was not convinced that the idea that Irina Godunova and then later, Boris's wife were total zeros, and were simply baby machines. I mean, she just couldn't quite believe this. But um, uh, people didn't, she couldn't convince anyone. But I think she was right. Her instinct was correct.
1: Oh, thank you. The, um, y- yeah, and um, I've had other. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll leave that there. Thank you. The, and this let me turn to a, a question about sources as well although uh, dealing with diplomatic ones and I just mm-hmm. as I was reading I just wanted to ask you if you, do you have any tips or shortcuts for distinguishing between when people are giving reasons and when they're get, making up rationalizations um after all you, you know you give examples of of times when people are saying precisely untrue things um yes of course And so, you know, I wondered, could you could one make a generalization that private reports to the you know their own reporting back to their sovereign might be more reliable and yet at the same time, sometimes you have individuals advancing their own careers.
0: Okay, um, I actually have an art. I should have made this more explicit at some point, but I actually have an old article that I did a, a little bit on this point. Which I, um, but I don't answer everything that you've asked. You've got all the, you've got the main questions there. This is a really big issue, I think. Um, it's true, it's true of any early modern diplomatic reports, but it's more true with Russia because we don't usually have as many of them and in, in, except until the very end of the 17th century, and they haven't been looked at as self-consciously. But first of all, you hit the key, the private report to the sovereign. Um, the published accounts that we have spent an inordinate amount of time, we meaning our me my colleagues and so on, and for the 16th century and especially, those were reports written by people who came to Russia for two or three months, stayed there, went home. The odd ones stayed a little longer. Um, some of them had some kind of pidgin Russian. The, the ambassadors, some of the ambassadors from the Habsburgs um, were people who had some Slavic language because they were actually from what is now Slovenia or something like that. And of course the Poles knew exactly what was going on because they could understand everything. Um, but you know, the they're the only ones. And because there were so many wars that they were, many of these Polish envoys were messengers who came, stayed, you know, two months, sort of two weeks left, that's it. Um, it really gets more interesting after 1667 when there are resident ambassadors. Those are the ones that I regard as more important. Um, Before that, the only people who are there that are the only equivalent to a resident ambassador is that from 1630 on, there were a series of Swedish agents. They have very interesting information. The Dutch source. I didn't say this in the article. I well, I maybe I did just mention it as a possibility. But that since I published that about the 1620s, I'm more and more convinced that this was Isaac Massa, um, because the, he's the only one that fits the profile. Um, he was very well informed. He would obviously knew the situation in Russia well, and also that he was the Swedes made use of him, and he was. I mean, he was working for the Dutch, but he had such good relations. Holland and Sweden had very good relations in those years, and he had good personal relations with the Swedish court. So, on this several of his trips to Russia in the sixteen twenties, he stopped in Stockholm on the way back, huh. and I think this is what this is has to be what it is. Um, there is also another little bit that the um, Dutch version of the document that we're talking about was not in the Swedish state archive in 1913 when my Russian predecessor went and looked at it. It came later. It's stamped by the Swedish archivist Tde collection. Tde was the estate of of in other words this was the private papers of this principal minister of state of sweden in the 17th century like a lot of these people like in england burley and cecil and so on they just kept all the stuff in their uh, in their manor house even though they were secret documents of state and so on and they ended up in another in that collection and so at some point in the 1930s or 40s the Oxenchenna descendants gave all the stuff to the swedish archives that's why i found them because the the Swedes are very organized so they they, they put them all together in a coherent order not just a big dump of documents so okay so that's the way um, you know that's the way things work but you see once you get resident ambassadors then you have people who either have already or learn the languages or learn a large number of people that they can talk to if they don't um, and they acquire a network and the The thing that you have to do is to look at what these permanent resident ambassadors say, and also you try to figure out, this is complicated, but if you can do it, you can figure out who their network is among the Russians. Um, There are a couple of comments about that in my Peter book, mostly in the footnotes, but it's sort of propositions, I'm not sure about everything. But also the final note on this is that these guys were very careful. I noticed that all of them in the varying languages that they wrote wrote, used a somewhat similar vocabulary. Um, They will say something, the most reliable situation is this, I spoke to X, which could be Peter himself, and we had a long conversation about this, that, and the other thing. And this is what he told me. Um, the best example of that is the long conversation that Peter had with the Danish ambassador about the, after the death of Louis XIV about succession in France, where he had two or three, his, this is 1715. So this is you know, seven years before the succession decree. He outlines what he thinks about this. Um Second, the second, that's the most reliable. The second one, most reliable, is something like this. Um, I have been told by a named person that this is the situation. Next second. I have been told by a trusted source, unnamed. Then it goes to. Um, I have heard, or there is a rumor. Um, so these guys were pretty careful because you know, they knew that back home in Copenhagen or Vienna or whatever, the um, uh, people were reading these things and not just some low-level clerk. Um, and they were, excuse me, and they, were, um, they needed to know what is this based on. Is is this is this is our ambassador telling us this? Is this a rumor, or did he hear this from Menshikov for Peter? Yeah. No, I mean, of course, Peter could say something that's you know or deceptive to to you know to because he wants them to think something, but they're smart enough to think about that. You know, back home they do that themselves all the time.
1: Yeah. Uh- Thank you you know along that line I am um, I want to actually I want to say to all our advice um, all our listeners I really encourage um, people to read this book because there's so many just fascinating stories about the diplomatic interactions the attempts at the marriage arrangements that happen and don't happen and and the ins and outs of this and you really mm. you know take take us through it in a way that is is so worth reading um, but I know, but I know you, you, your time is is limited, so I want to encourage people to read it. But while I do have the opportunity to interview you here, I'd like to ask a, another question, kind of about sources and research. Yeah. You you have been in your post that you're in now since 1975. Your yes. career has spanned a time in which uh, technology has has come into all of our lives in a <laughs> in, in ways that no one in 19 or certainly you probably weren't imagining in in mm-hmm. 1975 and i was wondering if i if you could reflect a little bit on um i mean we all i, I want to ask you if you could reflect a little bit on um how your research and writing processes have changed with the um advent infiltration of all this technology in our, our world and um and also if you have you know how is technology changing the way in which we do our history work, or what we're in dialogue with. I'd be, so if you had any kind of thoughts thinking, you know, you started, you wrote your first book probably by hand, um, hand and typewriter I, before with personal. A typewriter.
0: No, I never did it by hand. My, was right. My okay. handwriting wasn't very good even for me to read. No, I typed it. Um, Uh, Yes, in those days you typed it out. You had made a type script and um, then you put in hand corrections as clearly as you could. And then you took it to a person who made a living by typing. They were mostly middle-aged women. They were terrific. I mean, you know, they would, you know, they would correct your spelling sometimes or, you know, we would get a query, you know, is this right? This kind of thing. Um, But anyway, the... um, No, and then I'd say I was thinking, I've thought about this recently, and of course it's been speeded up by the pandemic because, you know, for a while the library was rather inaccessible, never never shut totally here, but it was hard to use. Um, And uh, I was really pushed onto um, a lot of getting things through the internet fortunately as you know our colleagues in russia are not very interested in copyright laws so that books appear on the um uh internet very quickly fully scanned uh but the um but the fact is that um what's really changed i think what's changed is that it's I, I, I imagine people in modern history have a different perspective, but for me, what has changed is the accessibility of complicated sources. I mean, there are a fair number of people in Europe, it's very erratic what countries and what archives, but there are a fair number that are, um, will do a considerable amount of scanning. I mean, for that Swedish material I mentioned back in the '90s, I had to get them to buy microfilms um, from uh, from Europe, and they were shipped here physically, and they sit in the basement of the Yale Library in our microfilm collection, which is enormous. Um, but I had a graduate student uh, recently who just finished who was interested in Russian relations with Denmark. Well, you know, he got most of the stuff scanned. I mean, he went to Denmark to look at it first and again, tell them, I want this, I want that. But, you know, that it's uh, but, you know, I could I, I myself got some things from the Danes simply by looking at the catalog and saying, I'd like this one. And you pay, you know, through PayPal or something like that. I've gotten things from Geem. you know, which used to be a tremendous problem in the old days, Um I mean, not after about 1980, but in the Soviet period was a problem even for the local scholars, much less from abroad. But, you know, game for a price, we'll scan you these manuscripts. And then I found that, any, found that anything, if you look in that bibliography of mine, you'll find there are a fair number of books, printed books from Western European, printed books from the 17th century and early 18th century. Well, yeah, actually the Yale Library and our Beinecke Rare Book Library has most of them, but you know, I don't bother with that. I go on Google Books and there it is. Um, and if it's not on Google Books, it's been scanned, um, partic- even if it's not Central European, the Bavarian Library and the Austrian National Library have huge collections of scanned books. Um, uh, I got something like between the Poles and the Austrians and the Bavarians for an article I wrote a couple of years ago, I got something like six copies, six different editions of, of um book about his trip to Moscow in something like a day. I mean, um, and that's including going and having a cup of tea and, you know, taking a walk around the block. I mean, it, you know, it, it's not like I spent a whole day in front of the machine. Um, but that changes things very radically, and it's possible to be—it's uh, possible to be very quickly, very erudite in a degree that I couldn't possibly have imagined thirty or forty years ago. Um, the downside of that, other than that it means that I don't get enough exercise because um, I'm sitting in front of the computer too long, is that uh, it's you get you have to think about information overload, you know, you know, what do you, where do you stop? I mean, you can't, um, if you can, you know what, you can't fool with six editions of some 17th century tract that's not terribly important to your um, work. You can get very easily distracted with this. Um, And, you know, of course, some of it's hard to do. I mean, reading, uh, manuscript on microfilm, I'm sorry, on scans is not always the best thing. I mean, um, some of those game manuscripts that are written in ustav and with nice black ink and beautifully photographed, those were easy to use. But, you know, the, the scribblings of some Danish clerk, I mean, you know, or for that matter, Russian clerk. That can be a little more complicated, and it's harder to do than when you're actually sitting there looking at the document.
1: yeah, yeah, i i I agree. and the burden of thoroughness is <laughs> it almost becomes greater, yeah, and
0: greater. So it, it it gets a little out of hand.
1: Yeah, well, thank you very much for that. Um, I want to, gosh, we're coming up on an, on an hour here and I promised I wouldn't keep, keep you for more than an hour. So I wanna um, ask you, I wanna close with a traditional um, oh. a, a New Books Network question, which is, what are you working on now or next?
0: Um, uh, this will kind of surprise you, I think. Um, I am working on I am working on the Russian translation that was made in somewhere in the first half of the sixteenth century of um, the thirteenth century history of the Trojan War by one Sicilian named, known as Guido de Colonna, Guido de la Colonna um, which is a very typical uh, medieval account of the Trojan War, which for reasons not perfectly clear to me, um, the Russians translated in its entirety. It's in modern edition and it's about a 300 page book. They translated the whole darn thing. And that in itself is not only is that interesting, but it was included in the Litzevoy Lettepisne Svod, the gigantic um, in the modern edition, something like 38 volumes printed of uh, World Chronicle, um, a world and Russian, which was clearly prepared for the court of Ivan the Terrible. Um, The Russian literature on it is mostly about the volumes about russia but there is a whole world history starting from the creation through the romans and of course in the russian medieval conception of world history which they got from the prophet daniel um you have of course the four kingdoms um that is to say the what is it, the Assyrians or Babylonians, followed by the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Okay, to make the transition from the Greeks to the Romans, the story is the Trojan War, because at the end of the Trojan War, Aeneas come, leaves Troy and founds Rome. So this is a crucial part of this uh, extremely Theological conception of world history, which nevertheless leads you to to, led the Russians to want a better version of the Trojan War than they had before. And so they found one, which was, uh, though written in the 13th century, was still a bestseller in 15th century Europe. And they Mm -hmm. translated it into Russian. This was all known in 1900, but nobody really wanted to deal with it because, for one thing, the text of the Lidzevoi le te pisnisford was essentially inaccessible to scholars um, until about 15 years ago. Uh, That's another one of your uh, electronic things, by the way. I have the entire thing sitting on my computer. Uh, I can tell you, if you want to know, we want to download it. You go to a site called runiverse.ru, and it look up under L for Word. It's all there. Um, anyway, um, and the thing about it is that it's quoted by various people, uh, and there are references. Maxime Greck has a quotation from it. Um, that there are some other ones and no less himself than good old Ivan Vasilievich Grozny refers to it in the famous correspondence. Um, And there are a number of other people. It's oddly enough that we have about five or six references to this, which are absolutely unambiguous. I mean, there is no, the reference in Ivan's uh, Peripiska, or it's not Peripiska, in his Poslania um, are, absolutely impossible to find in any other texts about the Trojan War known to anyone in 16th or 17th century Russia. And the um, Maxim is a straight quotation, et cetera, et cetera. So um, this text circulated among the Moscow elite. So what I'm trying to figure out is what did they make of it? Is can we by looking at the translations and what are the words they use and so on and its circulation such as it was um what do we make of this you know what does it mean and i don't know all the answers in fact i don't have too many at all at all um but it's uh it's a curious text that well
1: it sounds fascinating and i really look Look forward to seeing um, what you'll do with it for sure. Um, and well, let me just thank you so much for um, I, personally and on behalf of the New Books Network audience for um, spending the time with us to talk about your book today it's, and doing history in general. It's really been a pleasure, Paul. Um, Good. So, well, you,
0: I'm glad you thought it was interesting.